thing about wildlife is that it the thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife is feeling of interconnectedness that it's humbling is that it's insightful intriguing you belong it's about all of us always evokes a sense of wonder doesn't matter why you're here that's the thing about wildlife there listeners i am ishika your host on the thing about wildlife i wholeheartedly welcome you to a new series within this podcast the thing about pride these are episodes showcasing the work and lived experiences of queer or lgbtqia plus identifying persons in the fields of ecology and conservation first up on today's episode I speak with Nisha Bhagat about her fantastic work studying birds in tea estates of Bengal, her journey in the intersection of being a wildlifer and a queer female-identifying individual, and talk about some larger philosophical questions about what fieldwork ought to look like. It was a fantastic conversation that gave me goosebumps and several crucial topics to mull over. Here's the episode now, The Thing About Birds and Chai. Hi, Nisha. Thanks so much for joining me on the thing about Pride for this series. And I'm very, very excited to talk to you uh, because I've known you now for the last couple of two to three years. We've known each other and I've discovered a lot of really fascinating things about you in this time and even more while doing a bit of background research for this episode. So I'm very excited about this conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ishika. It's so good to be here. I got very excited when you asked me to be on because I love podcast and I also <laughs> love talking to you. So this is just great fun in general. Thanks for having me. Oh, that's really so sweet of you, Nisha. And I'm really glad you're a part of the podcast now. Um, I'm going to start right at the beginning like I usually do. And of course, this uh, I want this episode to be a lot about your personal and professional journeys so we're going to unpack that as we go along um but i want to start with your writings because i am just recently in love with how well you write and in your writings you often take your time to note down the details of your surroundings like you've written about the boisterous scarlet plumes of the delonix regia tree and the happenings in another cassia javanica tree and you've clearly had an eye for all things natural from a young age even before you actually got into the field of wildlife and conservation so um walk us through that trajectory over time you know what path did you take to ultimately do this for a career and what did you do before this um i think like most kids i went through like five or six careers that i wanted to do started with teacher then animator then uh, there was a phase when i wanted to be a doctor because both my parents are doctors and then for some reason i stuck on a biotechnologist and i still don't know what a biotechnologist does so i don't know where that came from but i was very committed to it for like 3 4 years at least like high school and uh, yeah i have been looking at like nature or birds from when i was a kid like just in our garden and i grew up opposite this place called ravindra sharovar in uh, kolkata 
uh, Robindra Sharobar is now a e-bird hotspot. It has like very rare species, single records from India. It's a crazy place. But yeah, I used to live opposite that. So I just came across a lot of things growing up. But yeah, I think when, when we shifted from Kolkata to this place called uh, Murshidabad, uh, this uh, town called Bohorampur, that's when like I left all my friends behind in Kolkata and I had to turn to something. And I kind of found comfort in looking at nature. And where I was living, there was a lot of it around. There were foxes, uh, sorry, jackals, not foxes, uh, jackals everywhere. They would come in front of the house uh, at night. Then there were a lot of birds, there were mongooses, and I just started watching them. And I made an excuse to sit in the balcony and study. Um, I said it's uh, good because there is sun or something, but I, it was an excuse. So, but I, I was still a biotechnologist at that point. <laughs> but then I went to this um, place called Holong for forest bungalow in Jaldapara National Park. And uh, I was bird watching. And uh, the DFO was there at that point and he spotted me and he was talking to me and he said, why don't you join Indian Forest Service? And I didn't know this was a thing. And from that moment on, I was like, Indian Forest Service, done, <laughs> decided. <laughs> and that went on for like 10 more years until uh, third year of engineering, when I was tired of engineering and I was literally Googling every day, like wildlife, wildlife career, wildlife research. And I came across this thing called wildlife biology and conservation research, which I didn't know was a thing. And then I found NCBS. And I was like, this is the place to be, the only place I was eligible for, incidentally. And uh, yeah, only option. And then two years, just fingers crossed. And it worked out. Didn't think it would, but it did. So yeah, that's like how it went, basically. Wow, that's that's really cool, Nisha, to know that you had the opportunity to finally get to that point, even though, like, I think you were telling me just before we hit record that uh, you didn't have biology post 8th standard, is that right? Post 10th, and uh, post yeah, that is because I went from a phase of wanting to be a doctor to anything but a doctor. <laughs> so after class 10th, I was like, I'm not even going to take biology because then people have a chance of forcing me to write the medical entrance yeah. so I just got done with it and took statistics instead well statistics is clearly very important for our field so that that must have worked out well in one way at least yes it did it did I'm glad things turned the way they did yeah no you highlighted something so important about just general awareness right because I feel like things were a bit similar for me even though I'm not at all quantitatively inclined and I loved biology and tried to hold on to it I think I knew I really liked wildlife and you know all the nature around me from a very young age but I hadn't a clue about how to actually turn that into a career or that it was an option until much later so it's really I find it very wholesome to see a lot of kids now having that option from day one because clearly we didn't know this was an option for us until we really had to find a way to do masters. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, I try to make it a point to tell like my cousins and, you know, whoever, kids around me that this is something that exists. It's not all flowers and rainbows. 
but it is a thing that should be on your radar if you are interested in that and i think it's gotten much more popular mm -hmm. in the past like i want to say 5 to 10 years yeah but that also might be because i came in so i see it from a different perspective so yeah no that's that's true i also feel that once i started figuring out a little bit more about the field and where to intern who to work with where to study it feels like more is happening and that there are more opportunities but it, i wonder if it's just because i'm on the inside um but also speaking of flowers and rainbows that you brought up <laughs> what was it like along this journey of trying to explore stuff that you didn't even know existed career wise and trying to figure out what you really wanted to do what where was it along that journey of figuring out your professional path that you also came to explore your own identity and orientation and did that affect your decisions or inclinations career wise in any way so i started like my first any kind of work that i did in the environment sector if i were to say was with this organization called youth conservation action network and i was in a program which was at that time called the earth ambassadors program now it's called the earth educators program so it was basically uh, we were trained to uh, carry out our own module of environmental or conservation education to kids in a school of our choice back in our hometown and uh, i have always loved teaching i was teaching uh, kids right after class 12 uh, for pocket money <laughs> and yeah i realized that i really love teaching and i still do so i mean and that is something that i am still interested in i'm actually getting back into it but that was something i did then i uh, interned with a few people i volunteered for a lot of bird surveys in madhya pradesh mostly they were open to public which was great for me because didn't really require a lot of you know background experiences which I, at that time i didn't have and those experiences helped me you know kind of build up my uh, resume or whatever uh, so and i have got i have been a little lucky i would say because i have never worked even as an intern without pay any pay like it wasn't much but it was something which is even now rare sadly so in that way i think i was quite lucky to you know find uh, you can and then i interned with nature meets nature club at the butterfly garden in kolkata and both places i had really good experience and yeah it was kind of at the during my time at the butterfly garden i don't know if it was seeing all the colors and like spending 3 hours alone in a butterfly enclosure enclosure a butterfly dome and just looking at butterflies doing their thing and they do crazy things and i just started thinking maybe a bit more deeply and came out of denial but of course that didn't happen in a stage and um, i am someone who finds comfort in understanding what level i fit in i don't i know it's not for everyone but i find certain levels comforting so after i realized that i am queer i kind of wanted to dissect that a bit more and uh, see what feels right so i remember being stuck between pansexuality and bisexuality 
and at that time what seemed like a good idea was painting my nails so i went like one week with the pan flag colors on my nails and that was like just subtle enough so that people would notice everyone noticed the at like whoever was working with like what are this random colors on your nails but no one went too deep into it and then i went like a couple weeks with the bai pride flag colors and then i was like yeah this feels better <laughs> i just stuck with it that's literally it it felt right but yeah i and after that i mean i wasn't like out i was very much closeted and masking and also exploring you know what it means to be queer because i had not done that before ever and i was like into my 20s already and uh, yeah i think after coming into the masters course at ncps um it created a sense of comfort and i chanced upon a community of other queer people and just through conversations some of us came out to each other quite naturally and it didn't feel like a task and uh, once there was this you know support system of like a few people to fall back on i got more bold so i just started you know not hiding it basically and yeah that's how it's gone and uh, like right now again i'm lucky to be working at a place like uh, at an i'm employed at an institution which knows that i am there and uh, i have come out directly to the people i work under so i think again i have been quite lucky thanks so much for sharing that journey nisha i know that it's not easy to tell the story uh, and especially i think as a queer person you end up in situations where coming out is a never ending process right it's not like mm-hmm. you can just come out once and it ends and i think that's particularly true in our field because uh you know there are we start out at least where we are safer to come out in certain circles rather than others and uh, and so you have to keep retelling these stories and you have to perhaps often also change the way in which you do it every time somebody asks you a question about it or you feel safe enough to confide in somebody so i really appreciate you sharing that with us um thanks thanks for that and uh, it is it is a lot to actually have to figure out who you are find what label fits you and also figure out who you are professionally and what you want to do with your life it can be quite overwhelming to navigate both together yeah. and i it's also like while coming out is also never ending i also feel this exploration is never ending because i am someone who quickly gets used to things that i do and i kind of get tired of it and i want to explore more and more so i feel like i am right now doing the exact kind of work i had dreamt of doing like five years back but now i want to do something else yeah and it's like you always want to keep exploring more stuff and when you have the opportunity to do that you i am i can't be like you know comfortable in what i am doing and just sit back i probably should for my mental health but i don't <laughs> so yeah and yeah figuring out sexuality and gender i think i'm i'm i think i'm somewhere with my sexuality right now but again i'm like i'm starting to unpack gender so we'll see how that goes but yeah i mean uh, uh with pronouns uh, i still i'm not sure what exact set of pronouns i 
am absolutely comfortable with i would kind of go so far as to say that it might be because i think this is my personal idea that i my first language is bengali and in mm-hmm. bengali you don't have gendered verbs or pronouns so i don't really think of gender in an english way if that makes sense and it i does, don't know yeah. what set of english pronouns fits my understanding as someone who inherently thinks in bengali mm. <laughs> that's such an interesting point nisha that's not something i've uh, i've really thought about much yeah and i think that probably also makes perspectives of gendered stereotypes and your expectations based on your gender in different spaces more complex um, especially if you're not thinking of it in that way but i couldn't agree more about how exploration is also pretty never ending on the professional and personal front uh, because as i learn more about sexuality as i learn more about wildlife you know i keep questioning and i think this is something i notice a lot in the queer community as well where we start questioning our fundamentals of our being at such a young age that it becomes a bit of a habit and it becomes a comfort zone like you were saying to really figure out who you are and more than not knowing who you are you can actually often draw comfort from taking that extra time to figure out what it is what is causing that turmoil uh, so yeah that cycle of questioning who we are is pretty never ending and uh, equal parts infuriating and comforting <laughs> for sure yeah i agree um <laughs> uh, I also want to ask you about your first scientific exploration, right? So after you found NCBS and you were finally in an area where you figured out how to take your interest for the natural world and convert it into a career, your first complete body of work uh that you did was part of your master's thesis at NCBS where you worked in West Bengal itself and um, I had the opportunity to teach you for a short period of time while you were studying and even in that little duration of time I noticed how you had a very wide range of topical and even geographical interests at the time and like you just said you keep looking for new things to get into and get interested in so what ultimately led you to your field site in Bengal I in terms of the site itself I was kind of uh, sure from the beginning that i want to work in the darjeeling himalayas or the foothills in that region because not a lot of people do and uh, i find that quite sad <laughs> because it's such a such a diverse landscape in terms of you know not just wildlife but people and cultures and it has a very very interesting history uh, especially uh, even jalpaiguri district where i worked it has a very interesting history and uh, what i actually uh, you know played around with more was the idea of the research itself not just the geographical area so i think i was uh, sure i'm going to work in the duars region in north bengal before i was sure i was uh, deciding this topic and i decided tea gardens uh 
that came around in a very roundabout way that started with a book in, of soil biology and polyphenols and like tea has polyphenols and it actually reminded me of a visit uh, with my family to this tea garden called Peshok in uh, Darjeeling district which is a huge garden that has been abandoned by the management for many years now and uh, when it's now a popular tourist site because just just on the roadside and uh, uh, the garden laborers right now they don't have job in the garden because the management is gone but the garden is still there and just by the nature of the tea it's not going to turn into a forest because the ground is like covered with this bushes and the people are making the most of it so they are collecting whatever uh, leaves they have they are hand rolling the tea and they are selling it on the roadside to the tourists and uh, i started reading about the lives of the people in abundant tea plantations and it was uh, horrific like there is no other word for it it's horrific uh so that's actually what i wanted to work on i wanted to work on uh the lives of people in this abundant tea plantations and what basically happens ecologically in a tea garden like 5 10 15 20 years into abandonment but when i went for my recce luckily for them and luckily for me in that region almost all the tea gardens had reopened so i went and realized that even gardens abandoned for some 15 years had reopened and they were slowly uh, starting to clear out the weeds and all and i would remember just standing in one garden and be like okay what do i do now and i just started seeing a lot of birds and uh, you know i remember there was this three large cuckoo shrikes and at that time i didn't know the call and it was like cloudy and dark i couldn't really make out the colors so i had no idea what this bird was that sounded like a parakeet but it's clearly not a parakeet and they just kept flying in circles and then i was like yeah this is fun <laughs> so yeah and then you have this shed trees in the gardens in that region and also in parts of assam which then i realized uh, when in our field trip to kardamane that that's not something you have in most of the gardens in south india you don't have shed trees at most you have silver oak and in that region you have native trees and the cover is pretty high like from a satellite image you can mistake it for a forest uh, some gardens at least so that's when i was like yeah this is this is interesting this is something you know i need to work on it's very doable because tea gardens are accessible the you know that is actually something i even now think about because i don't want to torture myself so <laughs> i see if the thing i'm interested in, like interests me you know scientifically and it's also doable in terms of logistics and that kind of hit a sweet spot so as like yeah and i just really love doers so <laughs> long winded answer but yeah <laughs> no i think uh, i think we all actually have pretty long winded answers for why we choose to work in a particular place and uh, if it does have that personal connect i mean really nothing like it because it really helps you ground yourself where you are uh, so also tell us a bit about what you found and what you were searching for so you were looking at how birds are using different kinds of uh, tea gardens and tea estates right and i think that's such an important yeah. study to do considering the amount of land in our country that just is covered with tea gardens and it also sounds like you know you brought the two things which really close to your heart together which is birds and this particular landscape so how did that actually turn out for your thesis 
so my idea was that in this tea garden sense, there are shed trees, like very bluntly put, there is places for birds to sit. So if there is places for birds to sit, they're probably going to come and sit and do other things. So if there are, if, and if there compared to a garden where there is no shed tree and there's no place to sit, these are likely to be better habitats for birds. And, but again, the shed tree cover is not uniform across gardens. There is a lot of variation between gardens, even within gardens, in terms of how high the trees are, how big the trees are, what species, some species have fruit, some species don't. So I thought I'll go into how do you manage this shed cover in these tea gardens to better support the bird uh, community in that landscape. And yeah, I found uh, during my data collection, I found 104 species in the tea gardens and adding other species while I was on my way and all, it goes up to 113, which is a lot for tea gardens, one would not expect. And yeah, this included wow. quite a lot of species that one would understand to be uh, partial to like specialists of forest areas. And the reason this is interesting is because this entire doers landscape, it used to be primarily deciduous forests and riparian grasslands. And these were cleared to make tea gardens and they were cleared to make railway lines. And the timber was used to lay the railway lines to transport the tea to Kolkata. So the entire way the landscape looks right now, it has been shaped around the economy of tea. And you can't really ignore that history when you, you know, make sense of the landscape. And the reason I wanted to look at the habitat associations of birds was also this. It's because many birds in the landscape are uh, supposed to be in the forests, but they don't have forests. So where do they go? Uh, which places do they choose? Do they choose a particular type of garden more than others? And if they do, how do we modify the other gardens to make it better suited for them? And I did find like, to put it very simply, I found that uh, the tea gardens, which are farther away from the forests, there the effect of how you manage the shed tree becomes much more important than the tea gardens, which are, you know, just adjacent to the forests. And uh, one would think that a large number of trees would be good, but in the gardens, when you have a large number of trees, it's usually tiny trees. They don't, it's either like a few large trees or many small trees. That's how they maintain the cover, uh, the amount of shed canopy they need. And it turns out that few large trees is better than many small trees. And yeah, another kind of no-brainer supported by the data is that if the complexity of the vegetation, so how many layers of leaves you have along the vertical axis is more, then you get more species you get more birds which are you know dependent on forests so it kind of uh, emulates a forest i would guess in a way but again it was also interesting that i just from observations uh birds some birds behave very interestingly when they are in the tea they don't behave how they usually do in the forest and yeah i think that's just uh strengthened my love for uh you know fish out of water situations <laughs> like uh, even now what I'm studying on, it's like Shola birds outside Sholas. So I find that fun because in the place where a certain animal is supposed to be, we kind of know what it's doing till right now. 
but what does it do when it's not there? So I, I find that really interesting. Uh, thanks, Disha, for that. That was such a love. I can't believe you synthesized your entire thesis so simply and quickly for us. That was amazing. But I also noticed, unlike a lot of other writings about birds, you have taken the time even in your academic notes and in your thesis to mention some of those behavioral observations of the species that you saw. And not just, you know, like whether they were present or absent in an area, but also what they were doing in the area. And that was such a joy to read as someone who loves studying behavior and also loves birds. So could you also share some of those behavioral observations, the fish out of water observations that you made with us? Yes. yes, sure. Like the first thing that comes to mind was I was in one tea garden with my film collaborator, Bhulagata, uh, and uh, this four or five people came in with the pesticide spray tanks. And these are very loud machines, like loud motors, four of them. It's like a backpack. And then you have a spray uh, handle and you just spray the pesticide everywhere. And both of us were wearing masks because of COVID, but it's still like, you know, it still stung almost. But there was this group of black drongos and rufous tree pies um, who did not flinch. And then this drongo started following the people as they walked along the tea gardens. And uh, when they spray in the bushes, the insects get disturbed, they fly out. And the drongos were having a lot of fun just diving headfirst into the fumes and picking out the insects. And I didn't know what to think of it. And I was like, is this good? Is this bad? I don't know. But it's very interesting that not only are they not disturbed by the people, the sound, which even I was disturbed by, it's too loud. They dive into this toxic fumes and they get insects. And I don't know, I think it just says that how much flexible some, some bird species are, many are not. But yeah, they do this very weird, crazy things. And I saw quite a lot of birds which are usually present high up in the canopy. They are coming down into the tea bushes to again feed on insects. So tea gets a lot of insects and uh, birds seem to have a lot of fun eating them. So that's that was my favorite pastime. I would just stand and watch birds eat insects, basically. <laughs> wow. But clearly, we really need to study what's happening here a lot more if we are seeing birds dive bombing into plumes of pesticide. My gosh. Wow. But also, Nisha, you are someone who is genuinely multi-talented. Like, you have a cognitive appetite for a lot more than academia. You write really well. You're also a brilliant illustrator. And from my short period of teaching you, I also learned that you can tackle coding and statistical analysis with relative ease. And clearly, you also really like natural history and animal behavior. So... How do you typically balance these varied interests and skills as an ecologist now? Um, very frankly, I struggle. <laughs> but uh, I try to, you know, it's, I, one of my joys is to, like, try out new things. I just love it. And I don't find particular uh, interest in, you know, becoming an expert at something. I am 
more than happy being average at a lot of things so it's more of just trying out different things than you know anything else so yeah i i do small things that make me happy not you know here towards towards my career but i try to sneak in more creative things into the work that i have to do so for example if i'm sending out an uh, advertisement for uh, taking up interns i will paint something that i absolutely do not have to and make a poster <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of thing i will do and uh, yeah and there's a lot of other things that i might not post about but i think and dream a lot about you know like dancing and how to incorporate uh, you know all of that into maybe capturing ecological knowledge of people and taking it out to the masses because i am frankly pretty disillusioned <laughs> about the how much the science that we do actually reaches people and uh, even more so people who are not comfortable in english so yeah i think a lot about how to use you know more creative forms of expression to bring people the same kind of joy that we get when we have the privilege of living these experiences which a lot of people don't so yeah again that is always a work in progress but yeah i try to sneak in procrastinate on my actual work by doing all this stuff that's such an important point that you brought up nisha i feel the same in terms of just wondering what is the point of doing uh these ivory tower science projects if it doesn't reach more people and not many people know about it and it's it's just so inspiring to know that you are taking that effort to use your different skill sets to get your science to more play, more people and places um and you have such uh, it's a it's a great goal to have but i also really loved what you said about how you would rather be average at many things than waste all your time trying to be a perfectionist at one and i feel like that is that should be a motto for a lot of people and i'm going to try and imbibe that from you because i think that uh having those diverse experiences uh rather than you know fixating on a single one is so important um i have a lot to learn on that front so thank you for that bit of advice <laughs> i'm sure it's not for everyone and i'm um, when i i say that i'm happy being average but i'm again very critical of everything that i do and uh, imposter syndrome is very real but yeah i try to not worry about how others perceive it as long as it makes me happy but yeah definitely a work in progress yeah <laughs> oh that's that it's still commendable nisha <laughs> um You also shared a really lovely piece that you wrote recently with me that hit upon some of your most jarring and even lonely experiences of being in this field and we've already kind of hit upon the fact that this is an interesting intersection to be a part of where you are a queer identifying individual who is in a space and a field that is very different from just going to office every day so uh, I'll certainly link the article into the show notes of the episode um but even though you were talking about difficult themes in that article you also brought it all together with your repeated connections with the corpus mitbabet something that 
caught my eye in particular uh, owing to my repeated uh, connections with the corpus with Bhagat as well. Um, but let's unpack uh, some more of what you wrote about a little bit more. So what were some of those vulnerabilities that you've been exposed to through your life in this field as a queer identifying woman? Um, I think one is there is always this um, the whenever you are unmasking in any form, I am almost always prepared for the worst and uh, after a while you just come to terms with it and that just becomes a baseline that you know you have to deal with and every time you set out to field uh, you know that you are going to be closeted for you know the longest amount of time you even don't know what the end date of that is and I am not still used to that and even uh the places we go to, we have to be cognizant about the people and the cultures there. And city kids like me are definitely not a natural fit there. And, you know, like small expressions of my queer joy, like coloring my hair in very unnatural colors, is something that stands out very, very sharply when I'm in the field. So I try to strike a balance with that in... I don't compromise completely because then I would be absolutely miserable. I don't like color my hair black. For example, when I'm going to the field, I still have uh, some color, but I would maybe tie my hair up. So, you know, like it's, it's not as visible. And these are like the small, you know, halfway meeting points to just be able to work the best while also not compromising me as a person. And uh, I am kind of at a point where uh, I feel supported enough by a larger group of people that I don't uh, have to come out to people and I can do it if I want to and I don't owe it to anyone who I'm working with. So maybe if it comes up as a part of conversation, I'm comfortable with sharing that quite lightly as you know, a footnote at the end of conversation or a part of it, instead of, you know, a very serious topic that two people are, you know, discussing. And I am kind of at a hot seat where everyone is open to asking me questions about this. And I love it when people ask me things and I try to, uh, when someone does have genuine questions and they're open to knowing more about the community or the history of the community or why, where people want things a certain way, I'm very happy to answer those questions to the best of you know from my voice but again the truth is a lot of people have the answers pre-decided when they ask the questions and they are not ready to hear anything that's different from that and I think that's something that uh, one just has to accept after a while that um, it's not my job to change people's minds and uh, whatever is needed to protect myself while doing my work and as I think we were talking about earlier is uh, in this field it's quite difficult to maintain a uh, work and the life balance because you are living with your colleagues in the field with uh, little to no contact with your friends from other places or your family for months and um, working with colleagues is one thing and living with colleagues is a completely different thing because you never get out of your work mode 
you always present in a certain way and for me that uh, almost all the time means uh, that I am masking my queerness whenever I'm in the field uh, and uh, for weeks at end and I guess this time I've been lucky that where I was staying I was able to have a room to myself so I would have at least you know a couple hours a day where I am completely alone and I can be you know however I want to a certain way I still can't you know like sing loudly or dance around my room which is something I do when I'm at home but and that these are like small things which don't seem much but I think in the long term it does affect a lot because I am a being a person who I who I'm not and uh, yeah I guess that's just something you have to deal with being in the field but there are like by trial and error you can learn small changes that work for you and try to incorporate that in your life and if you have a project you build a culture around those values and when you take people up to work with you you draw boundaries you first of all like take people from every background like being a queer person you can like really cannot discriminate that's like not cool and uh, when you do have these people you have to start drawing boundaries as a queer person and as a woman which which I think a lot of women face in the field if they're working with male collaborators uh, it's sad but it's true that it's very difficult to be taken seriously and uh, I think we often try to be nice uh, so that we don't come across as rude it's some but I have learned quite recently that uh, you have to be slightly rude sometimes because like it appears rude to me but in reality it's just setting a boundary and that's something we should just practice more yeah yeah absolutely uh, thank you for sharing that Nisha and also for talking a little bit about what has kind of helped you stay in this field and nudged you towards continuing to find ways to do what you really want to do and need to do. Um, but also, I think like you were saying, having to power through and emerge at the other end or just keep going on a day-to-day -day basis is often unnecessarily romanticized. You know, this whole always power through and you got to do what you got to do. But it is truly challenging, especially in the day-to-day -day and the little ways and forms in which queer identity is expressed. And when you have the space to do that, sometimes in an urban or a safe setting, even in your own home, taking that away over time definitely does take its toll. Um, so I do fully agree with you. And I think drawing boundaries, like you said, is so difficult to do, but so important. And I'm really glad you currently have a field situation where you at least have that room to yourself, even if for a couple of hours a day. And I think you also hit upon the really uh, twofold challenge of being a woman, as well as a parent identifying individual, because it's our experiences in the field are so different from our cis male peers uh, because the way in which they are perceived, the expectations of them, they, uh, the way in which they can interact with field collaborators or local communities or even forest department staff, it is very different. And so, uh, yeah, it 
it can be a lot <laughs> yeah and uh, i think we have maybe it's a way of survival i don't know but we do have a tendency of romanticizing uh, the entire field and especially the field component of it and uh, i to to some extent it's necessary because you it helps you keep on loving but then i think you have to stop somewhere and take a hard look and be like uh, do we really have to uh, you know power through this or can we ask for some changes because say like field living conditions are often we are expected to uh, live like you know it's glorified like living in a hot water is dripping from the roof they have been eaten for two days because the road is cut off and sometimes that is the reality that's the way it is and you have to deal with it but that should not come as an expectation and uh, sometimes it's even seen that then how difficult uh, a time someone had in their field life other than like the data collection part immediately people get more fascinated by the science itself and i understand that i understand the fascination of difficult field work and adventures i totally get it but i think that sometimes takes away from the credibility of work that needs to be done in less treacherous landscapes because we have more of those and uh, we should not have to compromise to incredible extents and you know basic living standards are sometimes seen as luxuries and mm -hmm. i don't think that's okay and that's something we should continue to perpetuate if it's difficult it's difficult if it if it's remote and there is no network and everything that's the way it is but it doesn't have to be that if there is if it is a place say in duars where i was i was again very lucky very comfortable living in the edge of a town in a very comfy fill station mm. but that fact should not take away the fact that the science itself is still valid the difficulty of field work is i feel sometimes a little too romanticized i'm not sure i'm too happy about that <laughs> yeah no that's true and i think uh, especially now we aren't really in a situation where every single field site needs to be as uh, as disconnected and as devoid of facilities or even basic communities. And I think very often, unwittingly, researchers do end up going and living in unnecessarily substandard conditions, which are even worse than the conditions that sometimes even the local communities do live their everyday lives in simply out of romanticism for the field or as a rite of passage of some sort, uh, which I think we've also discussed a little bit before in some of the other episodes about even things like income and money and volunteering for free and things like that. So I find myself completely agreeing with you that we do need to take a strong second glance at a lot of these things. And just this sort of romanticism also ends up making it uh, something that is less accessible to people from many different backgrounds, you know, because it is a romantic ideal only to those who don't have to live without amenities in their day-to-day -day life. So you're actually romanticizing the actual lives of a lot of the people who we end up working with in the field, which is in itself so deeply problematic. Um, 
and it does definitely end up playing into how we navigate our personal lives and our identities in the field as well even when our basic day to day needs are not being met let alone mental needs uh, and just generally keeping our sanity together in these times and places so nisha do you have any other uh ways and means in which you have navigated some of these slightly fuzzy boundaries between personal and professional in non urban workspaces or any other ideas in terms of what uh field stations institutions or even mentors could do to make things a little better and safer for uh those who are uh lgbtqia plus identifying just to be better spaces to work in um i think uh, mentors here have a big role to play because they really decide a lot they determine you know how the work is going to be often the people we collaborate with in the field or the places we stay it's at this stage it's through the contacts of our mentors in a lot of cases so if we have mentors who are understanding of the queer community who are curious about the queer community and you know our allies basically it makes things a lot easier because then they understand our needs and they can you know recommend people and places where we can feel a little safer because it's kind of like this person has my back and uh, i think uh, people like me who are just starting off having that would make a huge difference because uh then one wouldn't feel like they are you know fumbling in the dark or putting themselves out there without uh safety in a lot of cases and uh, like again i personally would say because i'm very straight passing i can easily pass as straight i have till now faced more issues navigating field as a woman than as a queer person because i just don't divulge that i'm queer and because i have been masking for more than half of my life i have gotten good at it so uh i and i have heard like you said you have spoken with other people also that uh, basic things like toilets i have heard so many women say that they got utis in field because either there wasn't a toilet and uh, or the toilet was maintained very badly and utis for example are something that women struggle with more than men it's easier uh, menstrual hygiene uh, there is and uh, yeah just all of that it's just bad and sometimes you there is no other way but that should not be the baseline of acceptance and this is something mentors and institutions have the power to enforce uh, young 2025 year old people do not have so much of leeway in terms of choices but older people who have been in the fields and like women who have been in the field for longer who have gone through these experiences and their male colleagues who saw them struggle so much they should be more sympathetic and some of them many of them are but whoever is not they really should be because we need to break that cycle of you know this extreme tolerance of situations that is not normal going out to the forest because there is no toilet is not something we should accept as normal for months it's not okay not having water because uh, 
even the government of India is trying to get toilets everywhere because that's such a basic thing and people who are doing research should, you know, it's not possible everywhere, I understand, but it's something that we should, you know, strive for. And yeah, it things like this does make field less accessible and uh, not just, you know, queerness or women, but I find this field not very accepting of um, disabilities. Uh, for example, even like I'm not even talking about serious disabilities. A lot of people have injuries that cause chronic pain or, you know, limited movement. And because it is often a very physical work, intensive uh, thing, people who have such uh, experiences or the such issues, they have to be careful about that. And they can't, you know, push themselves beyond the point of comfort because then it's going to, like, their own health is going to get worse as well as the work is even going to get affected. And I, in my experience, I have, like, uh, an old sports injury and that sometimes affects how much I can, you know, trek mostly. And I have found that there isn't a lot of empathy regarding that. And I think that's just... Uh, Again, another step of how we kind of restrict this field to people because in the end, it's about understanding nature and working with nature and caring about nature. And uh, if we opened and made this more accessible, we would just have so many more people from different like health, financial and societal backgrounds. So much, so much to think about. Yeah. But yeah, I, I fully agree with you, Nisha. I mean... This is something that is very problematic and not just, uh, of course, looking, adding, being clear to that entire range of issues and things which are very fundamental, which haven't been fixed, is sometimes could also be a niche issue, but at other times it could be something that is very major and it's at the forefront of the problems. But when you don't even have a proper place or way to use a bathroom, you know, it really throws up a lot more questions into the air. And even as a woman, even when you don't disclose exactly your sexual or uh, gender orientation, um, if others around you perceive you as a woman, it does make things already a lot more challenging. And I find that continuously in our field, women have to prove themselves more than men because they are assumed to be less capable in terms of physical activity and exertion and doing field work in general. And this was something that I became conscious of from even before I started doing internships and volunteering, where I reached out to some uh, male mentors in the field who I looked up to. And I was very disappointed to be dismissed by a couple of people I really admired simply because they assumed that since I was a woman, I would be incapable of doing the kind of field work that they did to get to where they are. And so we often start off at a very unequal level, whether we are queer or not, but just because we are passing as women, um, the fact that a lot of, uh, you know, we end up having to work that much harder from day one anyway, just to be considered as equals to our male peers. And so 
it also ends up happening where I've seen a lot of women who even bring out the slightest bit of an issue in terms of say menstrual health for example like if you have a day where you simply are so uh, tired and fatigued from cramping or you're in so much pain or you have a lot of heavy bleeding and you decide to take a day away from the field and the women are genuinely afraid that they will be considered unfit for field simply because they need a day away from working because of their periods, right? And I've had uh, students who have, you know, been part of this field doing their master's work and things even after I did mine and now reaching out to me and saying, hey, you know, I'm not feeling really well. Is this, am I allowed to take a day off? And the fact that you even have to think about that is ridiculous, right? So there are so many challenges and so many uh, things that we really need to fix in terms of our mentality and how we perceive field work and what the expectations of it should be and I really hope like you're saying that our mentors uh, just value some of those challenges a lot more and provide more kindness and empathy and allowances for these things as they come up and I, I have a little bit of hope that when, I, when our generation ends up becoming those mentors it would be a kinder space but we do need support from our old mentors to get to a point where we can advise others in a slightly more empathetic way. Um, do you have any other ideas of what our allies could do, Nisha, in terms of our immediate peers, uh, apart from our mentors and institutions? Uh, one thing, like the first thing I think they can do at an individual level, which a lot of my friends do, is you know, uh, just be curious. Because there's a lot of things that we don't know, they don't know. And I think it's better to ask instead of make assumptions. Because when you make assumptions, then they may be wrong. And another thing is, um, I've seen sometimes people become very cautious about how they talk to you. Whether they said something slightly wrong and whether that's going to be. And I understand that and I, and I appreciate the place it's coming from. And I also want to, like, at least personally, or whoever's like, I wouldn't mind if they, you know, mess up one term or something, because even I do it, it's 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 a human mistake, and that's completely okay. So uh, I think uh, even when people respect you and your queerness, sometimes bridging the gap in understanding becomes a challenge. Uh, they do, don't know what questions is okay to ask, and I completely get that. But if if any ally has a close queer friend, just talking to them normally, I think that means the most when our queerness doesn't stand out as an identity separate from everything else that we are. It just fits into the fabric of everything else we are as a person. And it just becomes a part of every other conversation we have. It's not like, you know, scheduled eight o'clock will talk about queerness and this will be a very sad and heavy conversation. No, it doesn't have to be. It's it's a part of, it's like talking about if someone is talking about their experience as a cis head person, this is also my experience as a queer person and just a part of, it's just me living my life. It's a queer person living their life. So uh, I understand the apprehension allies have, uh, but I think it's okay to, you know, dip your foot into the murky waters and uh, start trying to explore. And uh, yeah, and when they get answered, 
answers to take those answers seriously and yeah and when allies are in a position where you are uh, employing people i would encourage something like you know explicitly state that lgbtq plus people are you know it's that you are an equal opportunity employer lgbtq plus people are welcome to apply for a position because uh, we will not naturally assume that one would expect that if you don't put it out there that means it's for everyone but that's not the case so it helps to make it explicit and yeah these are like small one line things that you can do to make a huge difference like just in terms of career yeah thanks nisha i think those are very practical and very doable things and i genuinely hope whoever is listening if you are an ally uh please pay heed <laughs> to what Nisha just said uh, and I echo you entirely it, it, it goes a long way uh, so Nisha where to from here what have you been up to in your professional space in the Sholas uh, and how have you been enjoying the current work you're doing uh, so currently I am studying endemic birds of the western Ghats who are specialized to live in the Sholas the Medemogen forests but mostly outside. So uh, the Nilgiri landscape, again, is a very human-dominated landscape, kind of has a similar history to doers in terms of that tea came and changed everything. So there's a lot of tea. There's a lot of timber plantations. You have eucalyptus and pine just covering the landscape. So from far, it will look like a forest. You go and see it's like a line of pine trees and there is no grass, no bushes, nothing else. And you have, you know, the famous Uti carrots grow in a lot of area. So <laughs> there is very little forests. And when it comes to birds that are confined to the top of the Nilgiri Plateau, they don't really have anywhere else to go. So, yeah, I wanted to say that because forest is just in, you know, tucked in one corner, where else are they and what are they doing there? And uh, yeah, it was fun because I've never spent much time in the Western Ghats. Again, another thing I have been very vocal about always is personally, I don't want to work in Western Ghats long term ever because <laughs> there's a lot of people already working there. No other reason. It's a very nice landscape. But uh, when the master's presenting and this opportunity opened up, I sat and thought that I don't want to regret 10 years down the line that I never worked in Western Ghats. And this was a year long opportunity. So again, sweet spot. So <laughs> here we are. And yeah, I'm looking at some very pretty and very vocal birds. So there's the Nilgiri laughing thrush, which is the main focus. It calls a lot. It laughs a lot. <laughs> and yeah, it's not afraid of people at all. It just hangs around you. They are very fun to watch. They have this white eyebrow kind of thing that makes them look very grumpy, which is again fun. <laughs> <laughs> because it's small <laughs> and uh, yeah again uh, it's been difficult because uh, I'm working in uh, Tamil Nadu I am Bengali I don't understand I understand like three four words of Tamil and that's not uh, ideal <laughs> and there's like very little English to go around but yeah I am being supported by amazing interns so they have kept it running basically while I am just trying to figure out uh, stuff 
but yeah it's been a good few months in field i saw nilgiri martin which i keep telling everyone about yeah it was there for 15 minutes again not afraid of us at all which you know i kind of see as a recurring trend in all this you know other kind of landscapes and yeah i am looking forward to you know carrying the work forward and uh, also finishing the work and moving on to my beloved landscapes hopefully sometime next year so yeah that's ahead but again like as i was saying before uh, i have realized that while i do love science i do love numbers i i am best when i can also have an avenue to express more creatively be that in art or in writing or dancing or you know this runs so i am kind of at a place where i want to explore if it's possible to have a sweet spot again of all of this where i can bring this together and uh, although i started off in the masters thinking i'll explore a lot of taxa i keep circling back to birds i don't do it intentionally it happens <laughs> so uh, maybe i'll stick to that for the time being because that's where it all started so yeah that's what I'll see how it goes. Oh, that's fantastic, Nisha! I really hope you manage to bring in all those different elements. And I genuinely feel there's no better field than this one to bring in creativity and font and behavior and just everyday experiences into play when it comes to your professional space. Because I think that way the conservation arena is very kind to interdisciplinarity and just generally. being a mixed bag of a lot of different avenues so i really hope you manage to continue doing that and uh, that's it just sounds so so very exciting do you have a favorite bird nisha or one that you relate to the most from all of your observations yes and this has no basis but one day i just opened the birds of indian subcontinent and decided that the white crested laughing thrush is my spirit animal and so this is a bird uh, which has a white crest and like head and neck and the entirety of the body is brown and it has a very nice white sorry a black line that goes through the eye so like winged eyeliner which i like and <laughs> <laughs> it also has a very loud raucous call and i relate to that because i am not but i would like to be more loud and break into song more often and yeah it's it's kind of drab kind of glamorous which is you know perfect so yeah it's a white crested laughing thrush for just visual reasons aesthetic reasons nothing else <laughs> but yeah but scientifically no i like all birds <laughs> aesthetically yeah. spoken like a true unbiased researcher <laughs> Oh, this was such a wonderful conversation, Nisha. I've I've just really thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, and we've covered such a span of topics. Thank you, thank you so much for this, and I hope you do continue to sing loudly, like the like, like the crested laughing thrush. Um, thank but you, yeah. Shita. thank you for this i wish uh, i wish now that this wasn't a virtual uh, recording and that i could just give you a tight hug for all that you shared with us today but we'll keep that in the bank for the next time i see you uh, but all the best sure. nisha and thank you so much for this thank you shikai it was great talking to you thanks for tuning in 
this series will continue next sunday where i'll be in conversation with three beautiful human beings whose work you were all first introduced to in season 2 over a year ago If you are a queer identifying individual in the fields of ecology or conservation do consider joining the Indian Queer Wildlife First Circle to be a part of this group one that respects your anonymity and keeps your identity confidential please write in to me at thethingaboutwildlife.com or dm me on any of our socials we are currently a group that is over 80 members strong and we are still growing remember you're not alone we're all in this together Thanks for listening.